This morning we'll be continuing our series in 1 Samuel. We'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 15 today, uh, which today I'm calling Ma! Which we'll get to, but first, well, it makes, it'll make sense by the end. It'll make sense. Uh, but first, we're going to talk about the birth and rise of Amalek. Uh, we got to kind of go backwards uh, a little bit here. We go back to Genesis chapter 36, uh, verses 1 and 12. So uh, it says, these are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. And then if we jump down to verse 12, Timnah was the concubine of Eliaphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliaphaz. These are the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. Okay, so if you remember Esau, well, certainly you remember Abraham. We got Abraham and then Isaac, and then Isaac has twins, uh, Esau and Jacob. Esau is born first. Jacob usurps him. He does this whole trick where he gets the birthright. Uh, but Esau's still around, right? And he's still having kids, and he's still living. Eventually, Esau um, gets referred to as Edom. So sometimes when you're reading Scripture, you'll come across the Edomites. Those are the descendants of Esau. Um, and, uh, and, and then one of his sons um, ha- is, is uh, Amalek. So, uh, or Elia, uh, one of his grandsons is Amalek. So Eliaphaz is Esau's son, and he has uh, this son named Amalek. Now, he's unique in this because if we read the whole genealogy that's being presented here in, G- in Genesis 36, he's the only illegitimate son that is mentioned. He's born of a concubine. Timnah is one of Eliaphaz's concubines, and yet he gets listed here. There would have certainly been more illegitimate sons in this genealogy, but he's the only one who gets Listed. Why? Because he becomes a big deal. He grows. He becomes a chief, the head of his own clan, um, and you have you're going to end up with the Amalekites, or as a group of people, uh, Amalek's descendants. The Amalekites become this group of people, and uh, they end up having an encounter with Israel as they're coming out of the Promised Land. So Israel uh, comes out, not out of the Promised Land, coming out of Egypt. So Israel comes out of Egypt, right? This is the story of the Exodus. They come out of Egypt, um, and then they're traveling toward the promised land. They cross the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14. Uh, They receive manna from heaven uh, in Exodus chapter 16. They receive water from the rock. Remember, they're they're thirsty. They're complained to to Moses. Moses uh, hits the the rock with his staff, and water comes out. They've been on the road for about two months coming out of Egypt. And this is rough going, right? If you take a group of people who had been enslaved and you bring them out of that slavery and then through the wilderness, right, through the desert, this is not an easy trek for them. Uh, and, and they're making their way, and then they come in contact with the Amalekites, which we read about in Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. 
Well, Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. So the Amalekites essentially have this like sneak attack on Israel, who is not doing well. I mean, they're not an army. They're not an army. They're a group of former slaves with women and children and everybody coming out of Egypt, uh, and Amalek attacks them. And so they have to go to war with Amalek. As a group of non, they're not trained, they're not soldiers, they have to go to war with Amalek. Joshua leads them in battle. God miraculously saves them um, by, by giving, granting them victory whenever Moses' hands were up, right? And they have to, to prop his hands up. He's got these guys next to him because he just didn't have the soldier, shoulder strength to keep it up, right? And so they're, they're holding it up. God creates this victory for them. But certainly Israelites died. And certainly, especially in the initial attack, it would have been really bad for them. Oh, we find out later on that it seems to have been an attack from behind, getting the weakest, the stragglers, um, really not a great thing. If we continue reading in this passage, verse 14, then Yahweh said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, Yahweh is my banner, saying a hand upon the throne of Yahweh. Yahweh will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So Moses is to instruct Joshua to destroy Amalek. And he does. He reiterates this instruction. So this is an incident that occurs in Exodus, right? The first five books of the Bible, we got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is three addresses that Moses gives to the Israelites before they cross into the Jordan. So it's all kind of happening at the same time. It's final instructions. Deuteronomy is final instructions from Moses to the Israelites before they enter the promised land. In that book, he tells them, verse 17 of Deuteronomy 25, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way, and when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when Yahweh your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that Yahweh your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So the, uh, the Malachites do not show up in the book of Joshua. They do appear briefly in the book of Judges to punish Israel for turning to other gods. But this moment has been, we've been waiting for this moment when God is going to decide it's time for the Israelites to destroy the Amalekites. Utterly destroy them, wipe them out. They, they've been waiting for this, for this day to come when God is going to give them that instruction. Moses tells them, it's not going to be right away. It's when he's giving you rest from your enemies. I'll tell you when you're going to go and destroy them utterly. That moment has come now with, with Saul on the throne, and we'll see him receive the charge to do this in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 9. I know that was a lot of preamble, but you see, it's important for us to know what has come, what has led up until this moment. And this is what has, this is what has happened. They've been waiting all this time to get this instruction. We'll get into it here. Verse, chapter 15, verses 1 through 9. Samuel said to Saul, Yahweh sent me to appoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of Yahweh. 
Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man, woman, child, and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction." So God has not forgotten what happened with the Amalekites, and he now charges Saul with executing this judgment, with the total annihilation of the Amalekites. He means men, women, children, infants, animals, everything that it is, wipe it out. This, was a, 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 this is a policy known as putting something under the ban. So if a country in, the, in this time, and it's not only Israel that did this at this time uh, in history, put something under the ban, it was like everything about it, everything related to it should be utterly destroyed. Totally, total annihilation. Don't keep anything. I equate it to, um, I, I heard this uh, story, though, that I read this news story the other day of this woman. She was out hiking uh, and she comes back to the end of the trail. And you know, most trailheads, if they have a restroom, it's like a vault toilet. Right, like it's a like a permanent porta potty kind of thing, where it's just a pit. Okay, she dropped her phone into the pit. Okay, and decided to go after it. She thought she could maybe fish it out. She's like trying to to reach it, and she fell in. Okay, sorry, I, I was a youth pastor for fourteen and a half years. These are the illustrations that I'm drawn to. Um, she fell in. Okay. And they, had, they eventually got her out. She actually found her phone and called 911. Um, and they got her out. Now, if that were you, if that were you, would you try to save any of your clothes? Okay? No. No, you're burning them. Right? You're throwing them away. You're like, I don't care if this is my favorite shirt. I don't ever see it again. Rid of it. I don't ever want to see it again. Let's get rid of it. Let's, you know, in fact, shave my body. I don't need it. Let's get as clean as we possibly can. Right? Like, let's just, I'll take a bath and some bleach. Like, let's get out of this. Right? Like, that's, that's, that's where you would go to. Total annihilation. No matter what you had on, no matter what you're like, we're not trying to save any of this. We're getting rid of it. That's what we're talking about here, total annihilation. But I recognize that, that this is a much more difficult decision to make and, and a difficult charge to hear God make because we're not just talking about clothing, we're talking about human beings. So we might ask, why has God held this grudge for so long? Why does God give them this policy of total annihilation? Why would he be so brutal? 
Well, first off, we must acknowledge that it's not a long time for God. This isn't something that's happened a long time in God's mind. If we look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as is as one day. God exists apart from time, so it's not, he doesn't have the experience of time passing the way that we have it. But more importantly, we must recognize and admit that jealousy and wrath are part of God's nature. Jealousy and wrath are part of God's inherent nature. As we see in Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, where it says this, Yahweh is a jealous God and avenging God. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. Yahweh takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power. And Yahweh will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Now, when we look at that passage, I know that for us, we, we read that passage, and what, we, what do we pull out? What line do we pull out? That we go, that's, the one I, that's the part I like. Yahweh is slow to anger. Right? We're like, yes, no, yeah, that's the God. I'm like, that's the one I like. That's the God I like, is that Yahweh is slow to anger. There's a lot more about him being avenging and wrathful in this passage than at that. that I mean, this is, he's slow to anger, great in power, he will by no means clear the guilty. By no means will he clear the guilty. And again, I think that's something that when we read that, we go, well, wait, 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 no, that, that's not, I, listen, I don't go to church to hear that he's by no means clear the guilty. That's me. I'm guilty. And yes, you are. And yes, you are a sinner. And God hates your sin, utterly hates your sin. But he does not clear the guilty. He takes all of that wrath, all of that anger, all of that hatred, all of that vengeance for your sin, and he pours it out on Jesus. Until we understand that, Jesus, that God is wrathful and avenging, that he hates sin, unless we understand that, we will not understand the cross. We will not understand the cross. But the reality is he takes that wrath and he pours it out on Jesus. We see in Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 9, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by the, him from the wrath of God. But again, if you, don't, if you don't believe in the wrath of God, if you don't understand the wrath of God, then that doesn't mean anything to you. What does it mean to you to be saved from the wrath of God if you don't believe in his wrath? But his wrath is real and it is justified. When he looks at our sin and, and, and sees what we do, our sin is not neutral. Our sin is evil. Our sin is hurting people. Our sin is rebelling against our creator. He has every right to wipe us out. Every right to devote us to total annihilation like he does the Amalekites here. This is justice. What he is telling to happen to the Amalekites, what he is decreeing to happen to the Amalekites is what ought to happen to us. It's what ought to happen to us. And not on a temporal human level, but on an eternal level. We should be totally annihilated, wiped out, separated from God forever. 
God has not forgotten our sin. He's poured it out. He's poured out his wrath on Jesus. And if it weren't for that, we would face the same fate as the Amalekites. So here, Saul has been charged with being an instrument of God's wrath. But first, he's got to spare the Kenites. He tells them to get out. They're living near, uh, near the Amalekites. So he tells them to get out. And then he defeats them fairly easily, wipes them out. They don't seem to be expecting it. He has a large army. He destroys everything except he keeps Agag, the king, alive. Uh, and he keeps the best of the animals. He doesn't destroy anything that could be good or useful. Now, we'll get into the consequences of that, but the main thing you should recognize there is he's not obeyed God. He's not done what God asked him to do. Okay, so but before we get into the consequences of that in the next section here, I want us to pause and think about how does this apply to us? Because uh, none of us uh, command an army. None of us have been like, don't, don't take this to be that, I, that God has charged you with annihilating anybody. Right? That's not... This is part of the problem of making sure we're reading the Bible in context, right? Because you could read this and go, I am meant to destroy, utterly destroy the Amalekites. I'm going to have to find some Amalekites, right? That's, and I know you'd never do that. That sounds silly. Uh, but you do it with lots of other Old Testament passages, so just want to make sure. Okay. How does this apply to us? In general, as we read the story of Israel and we read the story of the Old Testament, the Israelites and us, there's an awesome analogy that happens throughout the Old Testament that we can apply to our lives. And when we read passages like this, we can apply them to our lives. So when we see the Israelites being freed from slavery in Egypt, that is, is paralleled with our freedom from our slavery to sin. Right? God set them free from slavery in Egypt with the blood of the lamb at Passover, we have been set free from our slavery to sin with the blood of the lamb um, at, at the resurrection. Uh, so we've been set free. They're destined for the promised land where he has promised them uh, a good life and a peaceful life and a, 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 to thrive there in the promised land. We have been promised an abundant life here on earth an eternal life to come. How do we access that abundant life is the same way they access the promised land. When they go in there, it's not going to be empty. They're going to have to drive out these nations from around them. And it says God will help them, empower them, enable them to drive those nations out around them. We also have been promised this abundant life if we can only drive out, and we've been empowered to drive out our sin from, from around us. Where all the temptations we might face to sin are similar to these nations that are plaguing the Israelites, our temptation to sin is plaguing us. But we've been given the Holy Spirit and the ability to drive out those sins from our lives. But we have to take advantage of it, just like they had to take advantage of it. <coughs> and just like they, these have been told, that God tells the Israelites, don't make treaties with these nations, don't cooperate with these nations, like get them out of your life don't try to preserve anything. Here he tells them, the Amalekites, wipe them out, to devote them to total destruction. The same has to be true for our sin. We have to be willing to devote our sin to total destruction. And so often we decide to try to make a deal with our sin. Right? Okay, you stay over here. Right? You stay over here. I'll, I'll visit you on the weekends. 
right? Or all just deal, you stay at work because they don't really mind. Um, and, and so I'll, I'll, you know, we can, do, we can do this at work, but then like when I go home, then we got to act like I'm a Christian, okay? Right, those kind of things. We make those kind of deals with our sin. We try to preserve what we think of as good about our sin. We make excuses, as we'll see Saul do here in this next section, verses 10 through 23. The word of Yahweh came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to Yahweh all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to Yahweh, I have promised, I performed the commandment of Yahweh. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Saul said, I have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to Yahweh your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said, Stop, I will tell you what Yahweh said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? Yahweh anointed you to be you king over Israel. And Yahweh sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of Yahweh? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of Yahweh? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of Yahweh. I have gone on the mission on which Yahweh sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the, to the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil sheep and oxen and the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to Yahweh your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has Yahweh as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of Yahweh, he has also rejected you from being king. So God tells Samuel, right, we cut to Samuel. He's not been involved in this story so far. God, or he's not involved in the battle, but he tells Samuel what happened in the battle and how um, they, they kept these things and not obeyed God's word. And he, he's beside himself. He can't sleep. He's super angry. Um, and he goes to see, so he goes to see Saul in the morning. Saul, meanwhile, he set up a monument to himself at, at Carmel, right, which is indicative of his state of mind. Right? He's indicative of where he's at. This is not a man who's faithfully carrying out the commandments of God. This is a king who is defeating another nation for his own glory and honor. Right? You can't set up a monument to yourself and then go like, I did this for God. And thus I set up a monument to myself. Right? But we so often try to have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. Right? You can't get double credit which is what we want to do all the time. You see, Christians try to do this all the time. We do something for the approval of other people, and then we want credit from God too. Like, no, God, I, I did it for you. But then like also, these people, they like it also, and so that's probably pretty good for me. This is something we have to talk about when we go uh, to Mexico, when we do our Mexico trainings, because so often we'll have kids who like will want to come and then 
they're really doing it so they can kind of like tell their friends about it, post about it on social media, and get likes. And people will go, what, what a good person you are. You're so good. You did this. Like, that's so awesome. Like, you're so great. And look, you even look beautiful while you're doing it. Well, wow, that's incredible. Like, that's awesome, right? And that, like, what God's clear about is if that's why you did it, then you got your reward. You don't get credit from God too. He's not going to be fooled. That's what Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 6. Verse 2, he says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Right? This is something that they would do. Actually have people like blowing their like, doo, 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 I'm giving to the poor, everyone. Right? And then they get like, so that everyone goes like, oh, look, there. Yay, good job. Right? But we see this kind of thing happen. We see people do this kind of thing. Now, it is tricky because sometimes you're going to do something good and you're going to do it for God, but other people are going to notice and they're going to also give you praise. And you can't be like, no, 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 shut up, shut up, shut up. Right? I don't want, I don't want you to, to approve of this because I just did it for God. I don't, this isn't for you. This isn't for you. Right? Like, you can't do that because then there's, that's worse. And now you're being mean. Right? So... How do you know? How do you know if you're doing it truly for God or if you're doing it for them? Well, at some point, you're going to come up against a, a moment where those two things conflict, where it, what you've been doing and being praised for other pe- by other people you know, you've been doing for God, he's going to ask you to do something that they're not going to cheer for, and that's when you know who you're doing it for. And that's really where Saul came up against this, right? Because he... Why does, he, why does he keep Agag alive and why does he allow the people or, or even himself command them to keep the best of the animals? Because the people wanted that, right? They, they want that. You got soldiers you're sending to war at this time in history. They expect to be able to keep the spoils of war. Where they expect to be able to go through and they find good animals to bring those back to their home and enrich themselves that way. That's how they effectively got paid. So they're saying, like, if you don't allow us to bring these back with us, if you just make us kill them and destroy them here, what good is that? And so that's where we see it came up against that are people going to approve or is God going to approve? And he allowed them to keep the animals because that was their approval that he wanted more than anything else, which Samuel points out. He has this great line where he says, you know, Saul's saying, look, I obeyed. I did what God told me to do. And, and Samuel says, well, what is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Look, what's that I hear? What's that I hear, Saul? How come I hear, I hear sheep? That's funny. You destroyed everything. But he didn't, right? And he, and he, he allowed them to keep it because it would have it was good for them. But he's got a good excuse. Saul's got a great excuse. Hey, no, we brought them to sacrifice to Yahweh. We kept these so we could sacrifice them. And that's, that's a classic excuse for kids. Anybody who has kids, you know that you've like had a time when you've told them, like, hey, I'd like you to like do this chore or go do this thing. And then you come back and they haven't done it. And they go, well, you know, I didn't do that because I was doing this other thing for you. I thought you'd want me to do this. And it's like, well, that's interesting. But I asked you to do this. 
And that's essentially what's going on here. He's saying, no, no, we brought them to sacrifice to God. God. I didn't ask for that. I asked you to destroy them. Do what I asked you to do. That's as simple as that. Because he's got this good excuse. Samuel's heard enough of it. He tells him outright to stop in the middle of it, like stop saying this. And he's going to tell them what God thinks about it, which is essentially that with great power comes great responsibility. Yahweh had anointed Saul as king over Israel. He gave him a simple charge, destroy everything, and yet Saul didn't do it. And he's got more excuses. He claims that all he did was bring back Agag, the king of the Amalekites, which is a fact that he previously failed to mention, and an outright political move. Right? That was outright like a, a positive thing of like kings would not kill other kings so that then if they got attacked, they would not be killed. It's like, hey, we'll, we'll be, show respect to any king and we're not going to kill the king. And he also then deflects to, it's not that he brought the animals back, the people brought the animals back uh, so they could sacrifice them, deflecting the blame. But Samuel's response is, uh, is poetic. Literally, it's a poem uh, that he wrote. Uh, and seemingly, I would, I would assume, probably during the night when he couldn't sleep, he was composing this poem. And he tells them essentially, to obey is better than sacrifice. God wants our obedience more than anything else we could offer him. Often we want to continue in our rebellion while doing good things to make up for it. But he says more than anything, we want, he wants our obedience more than our sacrifice. And that's essentially what Saul tries to do here, is make up for his rebellion by doing something and claiming it's for God. But God doesn't buy it, Samuel doesn't buy it, and he tells him, concludes with the fact that because he's rejected God's word, God has rejected him from being king. That he's done with him as king. We'll continue here, verse 24, because now Saul's going to react to that. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of Yahweh and the words, because I prepared, I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before Yahweh. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of Yahweh, and Yahweh has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized his skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, Yahweh has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before Yahweh your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before Yahweh. And Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before Yahweh in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and Yahweh regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. 
So being faced with the consequences of his actions, Saul finally confesses his sin, and it's telling that his confession doesn't come until the consequence has been rendered. And he could have confessed before this, right? He's been confronted twice. He defended himself two times in the passage above. And repentance is just too late at this point. The consequence has already been laid out. He's too late to repent. And that will be true for us as well, that at some point it will be too late for us to repent. As it tells us in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. But we see Saul's desperation, right? He, as Samuel turns to walk away, he reaches and grabs his robes and tears them at the bottom, which Samuel uses as an opportunity for an illustration. Like, yeah, that's, that's what God's done to you in the kingdom. He's torn it away from you. And, and Saul is still begging now, begging him to, to come back. And why? Why is he begging him to come back? His motives are made clear in verse 30, where he says, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me. He wants the people to see Samuel's approval. Right? He tells, he's, he's saying, I want the people to see that you forgive me. I want the people to see that you accept me. He wants Samuel's approval before the people. It's not true repentance. Right? That's not true repentance. And again, I think it, if you think of parents and kids, You've probably had this experience. I've had this experience many times when your kid's done something wrong, maybe hurt their sibling or something like that, and you, you know, send them to their room, and then you go in, and you're going to talk with them, and you tell them, uh, okay, here's, here's what you did and why it was wrong, and now here are the consequences, and, uh, and then they start to cry, and you go, oh, good, they feel bad. That's what they should. They hurt their sibling. They should feel bad. And you go, okay, why are you crying? And it's always because of the consequences. It's never why you want them to be crying. It's never why you want. It's always because I I don't want to be, I have to stay in my room tonight. I don't want to go to bed early. I don't want to, whatever the consequence you've laid out, that's why they're crying, not because of what they did. And that's what's going on here. Saul is upset because of the consequence. He doesn't want Samuel to reject him. He doesn't want God to reject him as being king. He doesn't want the, the, his king to be ripped away from him. And so he's begging Samuel to come back. And Samuel does. He turns back. He allows Saul to, to bow before God like he uh, is, has asked to, to demonstrate his repentance before the people. But then Samuel demonstrates what true repentance would have looked like. He goes, you want to see what I was looking for? And he calls, he says, bring Agag here. He brings the king Agag to him, who comes cheerfully. His entire people have been wiped out. His entire people have been wiped out, and he comes like, hey, (laughs) we can be friends now, everybody, right? Like, we're good. The bitterness of death is past. Let's go. Like, oh, we're going to have a party? What's going on? Oh, you're Samuel. Nice to meet you, Samuel. Samuel says, like an action hero. He says this line, I mean, it's like straight out of like an action movie. Right? When he says, as your, what is it? As your, I have to read it. I should have had it memorized so I could really deliver it well. Right? Like, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless before women, among women. 
right? That's like, that's like straight out of an action movie. And so Samuel's an older guy, right? He's old, he's a retire, he's retiring, like he's, he's getting near his own death. He's an older guy holding this sword. You just imagine him holding this sword and a guy being like, wait, what? Like this old guy is going to come after me and delivers this epic line. But that's most of our action movies now, right? We take all these old guys and continue to make them super action heroes, right? You could just, yeah, I, it's Harrison Ford, right? Like you could, you, could, you could cast Harrison Ford in this role as an old guy, yeah. childless among women, you know, like that kind of thing. And then just hacks him up, brutal, brutal. Hacks him to pieces, it says, right there. And, and we assume Saul's like, throne room or whatever. It would have been wherever his headquarters were. Hacks him up, shows Saul, this is what you would have done. If you were actually repentant, you would have finished the job. And that's, that's what he does there. So we'll wrap it up with this. Three takeaways for today's message. Number one, devote your sin to total destruction. Just as God tells the Israelites to devote these nations to total destruction so that they can have the life that he's designed for them in the promised land, we have to devote our sin to total destruction that we might live the abundant life that he has offered us. And just like them, it's not that they have to be strong enough, not that they have to be good enough. God will fight with them. God will empower them, give them the ability to defeat these nations. God will also give us the ability to defeat our sin, to defeat our temptation. And totally destroy it. In response to what Jesus has done, we ought to seek to obey him fully. What he wants from us is our obedience. And even though our obedience is not what earns our salvation, our salvation is granted freely. If we understand what he has done for us, then we want to live for him. And our response ought to be what he wants from us would be our obedience more than anything else. And then lastly, demonstrate true repentance when you have sin, which means truly walking away from your sin, not just being sorry because you face the consequences. I'm going to pray here in just a minute, and then we'll take communion in remembrance of Jesus' broken body and shed blood. Uh, anyone here who has accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior uh, is free to take communion with us. Um, and then after that, we'll sing one closing song. Uh, after that, there'll be a prayer team available over here. If you'd like prayer for anything, they'd love to pray for you. Would you bow with me now? Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this uh, passage. As, uh, as brutal as it may be, God, we, uh, we just uh, pray that we would destroy our sin totally, that we would be devoted to you, that we would seek to obey you, submit ourselves to you, that we might live the abundant life you have for us. Pray these things in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen.